Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Common Day Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sadeh. I'm excited about today's episode. I really like when other guests recommend a guest come on the show, and Paul was one of those people where a previous guest of mine recommended that I talk to him. Paul is a career engineer. He held stints at uh, Sanofi and Eli Lilly, which combined lasted for more than 30 years. He saw kind of the start of the game as far as combination products are concerned. In this episode, we talk about the first auto injectors coming to market. We talk about harmonization around the requirements for auto injectors. We talk about his involvement in the ISO committee that generated 11608, you know, eventually becoming the chair of that committee. We talk about what he learned managing and creating combination product processes at two large uh, pharma companies, Eli Lilly and Sanofi. We talk about kind of the trajectory of his career, what it was like balancing family and work. One also really interesting note is that Paul spent time as a product line lead. So he was responsible for the PL on a product. And so his perspective is super, super interesting. I hope you enjoy this episode with Paul Jansen. As always, if you like the show, please hit pause, give it a five-star review. And without further ado, here is Paul. You're listening to another impactful episode of the Combinate Podcast, the show where we drive for quality in everything, because quality is everything. I'm your host, Subi Sade. I've been working on medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and combination products for the last 10 years, and my goal is to understand. Each week, I sit down with leaders to understand and bring together medtech and biotech in order to examine the roadblocks in development and access we face and bring to light concepts and tools from our industry and others to help address those. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. primarily as it relates to this combination products area, two big pharma companies. I was there for more than 30 years. I took a step away from that, thought I was going to retire, but ended up getting into the consulting game in 2017. And I've been doing that ever since. While I was at the pharma companies, in both cases, I had a, a wide range of roles, but primarily my focus was on building and running the device development capabilities within within each of those two pharma companies. And then in my consulting practice, I continue to work with not only the big pharma, but small pharma startups. I've had the good fortune of being able to get on the boards of a couple of companies and on the advisory boards of, of some, which is very interesting work to be able to share my, my experiences. And then throughout that entire time period from about early 1990s through to 2020, I guess, 21, I was involved with the International Standards Organization, particularly related to standards for combination products, Technical Committee 84. And in my last role there, I was the chair of that technical committee. So I had exposure to all these standards as well as all of the experts that participate in developing those standards. What's it like now? Without it, without it, without it being misunderstood, I guess I'm was I'm humbled 
and surprised at the number of people who want to listen to me, who want to hear what I've done and want my opinion on things. When I was, you know, in the trenches, as I like to think of my time at, at, at the big pharma companies, it wasn't always clear to me that anybody really wanted to know what I had to think or say or cared. Um, and then the minute I left, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't actually end up retiring, I just had oh. the, the phone just rang off the hook. So, you know, in, in January of 2017, I thought I was going to walk off and sail into the sunset and that would be the end of it. And then the phone started ringing and that that was really, like I say, I, I use the same words, very humbling to me that these people really wanted to to have access to what I had done over those 30 years previous. So it's a it's a it's a it's a nice feeling. Let's face it. It's good for the ego to have people <laughs> want to talk to you. I will I won't I won't say that's wrong. But I also think it's really nice because now I can give back. I mean I work on things that where I really believe I add value. I work on things that are interesting. And I can say no now a lot easier than I could before. So it's it's a pretty nice life. That's cool. So you uh, did you intend to retire and it just... Uh... Yeah, it really was that. That was the intent. I mean, and I think that's what's liberating is that you do it now. I mean, is there compensation involved in it? Absolutely. But is that the primary motivator? No. So, I mean, I do a number of things to to assist small startup companies that are pro bono. I mean, I'm not in it to absolutely every minute make money, but obviously the compensation that comes with some of these activities is is nice. It's kind of the mad money, but I don't really have to do it and that's the that's the beauty of it. Huh. It's funny. I was I was talking to someone yesterday and there's a book that recently came out. I ordered it. It's called Die with Zero. And I remember talking with my father-in-law, he used to say his, his dad growing up would tell him, enjoy this money while, while, while you have it now, because I'm not leaving a penny for you guys. And then this new book came out that basically was talking about how, how you should kind of invest your time, energy, health, those different sources that you have at the different stages of your life and where somebody who's 10 or 15 years into their career, maybe more concerned with the monetary resource and not be looking at their energy and health in a way that is in in as much focus later on, it is your energy and your health that becomes more of a focus and people end up not even talking about money. Yeah, no, no. I think that's precisely how it works. I mean, we also had the good fortune of having our family earlier in our life. I mean, a lot of people today kind of did it reverse. We did all of that in the beginning of our marriage, my wife and I, and as a result of that, I worked very hard through those years when the kids were young, and I was always running back and forth to take care of those things. But now later in life, there's new chapters to explore. There's grandchildren to explore, but there's also all this time, all this freedom. There are many people who are my age who are still looking after children to get through college. I've been there and done all of that. And uh, that's very reassuring. It really helps with planning, to be perfectly honest. That's awesome. We're, we're going to have to get back into combo products and, and product-related stuff, but but I'm loving where this conversation... And what helped you during those years where you had a lot to do? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, I have two young kids, and a lot of my friends are in the same place, by the way. It's just yeah. like everything is 
<laughs> everything is high activity. So it's just like, okay, this is good. Now this is, now I got to go turn to this and then vice versa. And I've even, yeah. you know, I always go back to one interview that I did. It was maybe my eighth or ninth interview uh, with a person and, and their kid was knocking on the door and then they came into the interview and it's just, that's kind of the, the door that COVID opened a little bit, bringing people into, into your rooms and things like that. But what was that like early on? And do you feel like it's given you more capacity later on? Well, I think it was probably two things. One, I mean, I think to do what I did, you need a lot of energy. And I, you know, was blessed with, you know, an abundant amount of energy and, and the need for little sleep. I could, I could function quite well on five or six hours sleep on, on a regular basis. And for years, that was my routine. So that allowed me to work into my schedule, you know, the, the necessary fitness that I wanted, things for myself, as well as uh, time for the children. I really, really made it a priority to try and schedule everything around those events that were important because, you know, that one school play, that one basketball game, that one, you know, hockey game, whatever it might be, it may be the only one. So you, you have to really do the, your best to not miss those. And that was hard. There were times when in my career, you know, I would, I would make a trip and have the meeting and turn around and go home to make some of those personal activities a reality. But I think as a result of that, and because I had a lot of energy and was able to manage, you know, time zone changes very well and so forth, that made it a lot easier. I think the other thing that really helped to me is that that I'm I'm one of those people who has the ability to compartmentalize. So when I'm focused on work, I'm focused on work. And then when I leave, I'm 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 out of it. Now, I changed that a little bit later in life because, you know, that's kind of like the work-family balance concept. But later in life, I, I coined, I think I coined, I don't know whether someone else uses the same term, but I, I like to think of it now as, as work-family integration. Yeah. Because there is a time when you should be kind of doing things even though you're on vacation. You know, everybody says, go on vacation and forget about that. But for some people, there are things that you want to do while you're on vacation that that need to get done, but that make you feel a lot better. And I think that's mm -hmm. different for every individual, what that is. But I do I do really believe that there is is an opportunity to, to put those two things together. You just have to make sure you don't let it become work all the time and no family. But you, you can integrate rather than separate if you want. Yeah, I think I, I don't know if I don't know if compartmentalization is what what I would look at it as much as just presence. Like I'm doing this now, then I'm doing this now, and that's the only yeah. thing that I'm. Yeah, there's there's you, the you you also don't let those other activities encroach on your thinking, and and stress you out or anything like that. And that's why I still think of it more as a compartmentalization. But we're both saying uh, the same thing. Yeah, it's a focus. That without the stress of the other stuff sitting in the back of your mind. Yeah, there's a, there's a concept of working in versus working out. Like people always say, I'm gonna go get a workout in, okay? But okay, that's a, that's a compound word, workout. What does work in mean? And to the point that you made about vacation, like for me, podcasting, I find it to be an energy in. It's not an yeah. energy out activity, okay? So I'm I'm filling the tank, not emptying it. Whereas yeah, if I do that's a great example. 
if I go spend 90 minutes on Zwift, yeah, that's an energy out <laughs> activity right. type of thing. Right. And so yeah. if I'm if I'm podcasting on vacation, I'm making my day better so that I can expend right. energy in other ways. And so I really like yeah. that. The the five, six hours of sleep thing, that's interesting. Cause I, I pay attention to my sleep and it's constantly getting interrupted with with kids, right? Um and there are trackers like Whoop and, and yeah. others that I don't know if you're familiar with them, but I am. Yes, I the, have. The, oh, really? Cool. Yeah. So, so the five to six hour thing is that more of an attitude thing, or because because I struggle with that. No, I think I think it really is truly more of a genetic thing. I mean, I I I don't believe that everybody can survive on that amount of sleep and really feel good about it. And there are some people, and I was blessed with it, although I will say as I get older, I want more sleep. So it's 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 no longer the way I find myself living, but it certainly was during those years. And I, I don't think it's anything that you can really create. I think if you create it, you just are are fooling yourself. I think you have to know what your body needs, and, and that differs by by person. Do Do you feel like also early on in your career that – the work that you were doing was more challenging for you? No, I mean, I've always, I, I think I've had two philosophies, Subit. I think one thing that that is different, you know, some there's two types of people in my experience. One, people who have a very well-defined career plan. I want to do this for one year. I want to do this for three years. I want to do that for five years. And in 10 years, I want to be here. I never was that kind of a person. My philosophy was one more of what I'll call opportunistic. If an opportunity came along, I was willing to grab it and and see where it took me. And that led me in some odd ways. I mean, who would have ever thought that early in my career I'd be negotiating union agreements for a for a an industrial company before I got into healthcare? Who would have thought I'd be looking after a customer service organization? You know, who thought I would have been, you know, running a banking, an automatic teller banking system for, for, for people? I mean, I never thought I would do those things, but they presented themselves. And I said, why not? And, and, and the question I always asked myself was, am I going to learn something? And do I think I can use that in the future? And in every case of the, you know, along the path I took, the answer was yes. And I think that makes it easier because you just don't worry about where you're going to be in that particular, you know, defined period of time. You just let it happen. And it worked out very well for me. So you you did kind of start outside of medical, right? Medical yep. device and pharma. How did you break that in? How did you break in, I should say? Well, I mean, I, truthfully, breaking in was was, I guess you might say, out of need. Because the I had a role with an electronics company. Philips Electronics, and in the early 1980s, they went through a, an economic downturn, and I got to lay off my department first, and then I myself was laid off. Man. So there I was with two young children. My wife was still at home with the children, and I didn't have a job. So, you know, I often tell people that's when I actually worked the hardest in my life, which was getting that job. Uh, because it was a matter of survival. And there were, at that point in time, there was not a lot going on, obviously, if there was an economic downturn, but I managed to find a role at Eli Lilly Canada, because I was originally from Canada, and I was living in Canada at the time. And that was the start of my 
career. I was fortunate enough to be able to leverage those experiences that I'd had before with with the with the industrial sector into this healthcare piece, and and the rest is is history, as they say. What was that layoff period like? Time wise, it was it was it was a three or four months. I mean, I had a bit of a bridge, obviously. I, I had somewhat of a package. I can't remember all of the details. I mean, in the end. I, I, I guess I'll say I broke out even. I mean, it wasn't as if I made a huge amount of money because I had a great severance and, and I was able to find a job right away because it, it, it took some time in that environment. But I mean, obviously, based on that being the start of this long-term time in, in healthcare, it was a great move and it worked out. But I think that's another example of it being opportunistic. You You can imagine I could have just stumbled across something that was more in a similar sector and that would have been the way I went you know mm. and so <clears throat> it sounds like time and again the 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 theme of attitude came up whether it was this whether it was you know how how you describe selecting opportunities by what reason do I have to say no is this something that I can use in the future will it be challenging and that type of thing I guess going well, back yeah, and I think also, uh, sorry, just to interrupt you, Subi, oh. I, I wanted to just say, I think it's also about being optimistic and, and having faith in yourself. I mean, I remember when I was at Eli Lilly Canada and I was offered the, the opportunity to move to Indianapolis to their corporate offices. One of my colleagues up there looked at me and he said, Paul, he said, what happens if it doesn't work out? And I mean, that thought had never even crossed my mind. I mean, this was a job that was really a good job. And this was the one, you know, to build the device team in Indianapolis it was the corporate headquarters. It was us leaving our country and moving to a new country. I mean, what, what kind of an adventure is that? And there was a person who would never have taken that job because he was afraid he might fail. And yet that never even occurred to me. It just never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't fail. And like I say, because of that opportunistic kind of attitude, if something had gone wrong, well, we would have figured it out. Yeah. And also, also there's, there's a, there's a balancing question of what if it all goes as spectacularly as it could go, yeah. right? Because I think there's, there's one, one mentor of mine talks about catastrophizing and, you know, people always go Debbie Downer, super negative immediately, but it's like, well, what's the flip side? Like, what if it just goes so incredibly well? that nothing goes wrong instead of what if yeah. everything goes wrong? Yeah. Going back into the combo product piece, because, because you built that type of frame into uh, two companies, Eli Lilly and Sanofi. And I think it was in a time where this area was less understood than it is now. So can you talk about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, you said it exactly right. I mean, if you go back to the Eli Lilly days back in the, in the mid 1990s, I mean, pen injectors were just getting started. I mean, the majority of the world for, for diabetics was a violent syringe. Um, you know, all the insulins were made in, in 10 ml or 5 ml vials, and then plastic syringes were given to, to patients, and that's how they administered their insulin. And it was, you know, and, and Novo Nordisk has to get credit for first coming up with the idea, but then rapidly the other competitors like Hooks, which is now Sanofi, and, and Eli Lilly recognized the value of, of these products to the patient because they were much more accurate and much more convenient. And, you know, 
someone that lives with a chronic disease that has to take an injection in those times, multiple times a day, you wanted to make that as easy as possible for them and as safe as possible. And, you know, quite frankly, putting, putting any drug into a vial is a very inaccurate way of delivering the drug. It may look accurate because you look at the vial or the syringe and you say it's filled properly, but in truth, compared to the accuracy you get out of some of these combination products like pen injectors, auto injectors, or on-body injectors, uh, it's, a, it's an order of magnitude better, the, the devices, the combination products. So I was at the good fortune of being at the, at the front of the line there, and that's when we first started working on standards through the, through the ISO committee, and that gave us all an opportunity to, as, as we used to joke, we used to work across the table to develop standards that would benefit the patient and benefit the, the industry. And then in the afternoon, we'd be across the table you know, as competitors, fighting one another <laughs> to see who could, who could sell the most insulin. But, but you learned a lot by having to work with different countries and different nationalities about you know, people and communication and leadership and you got to have insight into a lot of really good technical ideas about what was happening. So it's like anything. I think if you can be right at the front of, of something that then turns into, I'll, I'll call it a revolution, boy, you, you, you can learn a lot and, and be part of, of that as it evolves and evolve it did, as you said. You know, we, when we first put these devices out, I often wondered to myself, are people really going to use these things? And now, I mean, there's countries where a vial and a syringe, they look at that and they say, what is that? They have no idea. A, di a diabetic, that is. You know, it's all, it's all combination products that they're given. I mean, the U.S. is one of the holdouts where we still have a reasonable percentage of the population, but even that is changing. The, that last bit around something that's a revolution, did you think it was going to be that when you went into it? Or was it just a good opportunity that was exciting to you? For me, it was a good opportunity. I had no idea that it would take off the way it did. In fact, I often remember my boss at the time was a fellow by the name of John Lackleiter, who ultimately went on to become the CEO of Eli Lilly for a number of years. He's retired now. But I remember him telling me, he said, you know, Paul, he said, I'm not convinced that these devices are really going to become, you know, mainstream. But he said, we've got a number of people in Europe who really believe in the commercial side of the business that we need to have these. So he said, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing him, so don't, I don't want to quote him, but basically he, his, his message to me was just do something to keep them happy. And that was the attitude because people really didn't believe that, that the device was really going to add value to the pharmaceutical product. And I think now people recognize the system, the drug and the device in a combination product that's what makes or breaks it. It's, it's, it. it's not one or the other. It's the two in combination that really is what propels any one therapy to its, its place in the market. Especially, especially, that's especially the case with, I think, high value molecules, say, that enable sure injection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so going to the, the implementation piece, what was it like when that evolution was happening and what did you see the first time you around that you, you did it at Lilly and then the second time around at Sedona? Well, I think what's, what's really interesting is that when we were doing it at Lilly, we were so, it, it, the, the whole field was so young 
that we basically ran the, the group at Eli Lilly, which was known at that point in time as Pharmaceutical Delivery Systems. We ran it in an offsite building in the north part of Indianapolis. And I now realize we ran it like a startup company. Um, we did everything. Every one of us would do whatever we had to do to get our job done. The only difference between us and a startup company was that our funding came from Lilly and we didn't have to go out and fundraise. But otherwise, everything else really was reflective of the same attitude as a startup company. And, and what that means was, I mean, when we did our first clinical trial validation, you know, product validation, we built the line. We validated it ourselves, and we actually made the clinical trial material for the first pen injectors that came out of Eli Lilly on a line that we're sitting in our little lab in the back of the office in north, northern Indianapolis. I mean, who would have thought? Now, that, you know, fast forward 10 years to, to when I was, you know, asked to do the same thing, and you very rightfully point out that was one of the reasons why I was so excited about the the Sanofi opportunity, because it was an opportunity to do the same thing again. It was kind of like, okay, I did it once. Now I've got some learning. What can I do differently and how can I do it better? Mm. And clearly when we got there, we were no longer, you know, offsite. We were in the heart of things and we were much more valued by the company. And, and in that regard, I remember having been less than a couple of months moved to Germany and the chairman and CEO of Sanofi, who was in, in, in Paris, summoned me to come and give him an update on the product. And I will always remember to this day, Subi, he said to me, basically, uh, how much money do you need? I mean, he, he literally had his checkbook out. And I mean, he was willing to give me whatever we needed to make sure that we got the Solostar device for Lantis to the market, including... And this is the part I had to talk him out of. He was willing to let Sanofi get into the injection molding business. And I had wow. to talk him out of that because I said, you don't want to do that. Trust me. That is not our core business. You don't want to do that. But, but they were so focused on the fact that we'd had good success at, at Novo and, and Lilly, and he wanted to catch up. And he was willing to do whatever it was. And he also knew, by the way, he had a great asset in Lantis, which turned out to be a you know $10 billion or $9 billion drug. So, I mean, he, he had reason to want to spend some money. But that was a far cry from the days of being a little startup uh, in, in Indianapolis. And I think that's exactly what, what I would describe to you as the difference between the two in terms of you know the time. Okay, so that's, that's an interesting take. So in, in the first place you were funded but you had that startup culture in the second in the in the second place you were almost having to rein in the excitement and say whoa 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 uh, we maybe don't want to go that far i'm wondering in terms of the delta and the maybe cultures is the wrong world but the the, the change in attitudes what was it that made you say no let's let's not start doing injection molding for example well i i think I think I knew from my experiences with Lilly that that you know high precision, high volume molding is a business unto itself. And I had learned, you know, there were people who thought, well, gee, there's only twelve or thirteen plastic parts in a little pen injector. How hard can this be? Well, it's yeah. pretty darn hard when you consider that when you know you deliver one unit 
or a microliter of, of fluid from a cartridge in a pen injector, that that's about the, you're moving the, the plunger in your 3ml cartridge about the thickness of a piece of paper. And that's a thin piece of paper, not a thick one. And to, to do that reliably and repeatedly so that you can do, you know, meet all your design requirements and all your validation requirements and do it safely with a drug with like insulin that can kill people, that is really difficult. So especially if you I have didn't zero want to experience into that. Pardon yeah. me? I said, especially if you have zero experience. Exactly. Yeah, it just didn't make any sense. But when it came to the assembly of the product, oh, yeah, we can do that. We should do that. And we make huge investments in capital equipment around assembling the final product and being able to make it a platform and so on. But to actually go that far back into the supply chain just didn't make sense. Um, but I think the other difference that, that's important to recognize, in both cases, I had a lot of, uh, I'll call it, I don't want to say power because that's the wrong word. But I had a lot of decision-making authority in both cases. Influence. I mean, in 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 Lilly, they really didn't know any better. And as as I indicated by the attitude of, of management at the point in time, and I'm not criticizing that attitude, by the way. I, I think that was an accurate reflection of what they wanted. But they were basically saying, we trust you, just make it happen. And for the most part, that's exactly how we operated as a team. We just made it happen. And we didn't have a lot of quote unquote, interference from corporate. In Sanofi's case, obviously, I was much more integrated into the company. But because I had A, a track record, and B, because of where they were, I was given the opportunity to say, this is what we should do. And although there were debates about why and, and so forth, for the most part, I still had the authority to make the decisions to move forward. So in some ways, it was still very much a startup culture but in it with with a slightly different parameter around it, a little bit more mature, and uh, a, a bigger a bigger scope because you know we were involved with vaccines, we were involved in a wider range of of products. So you, I mean, I I feel like this would be a, a fair reflection, but correct it if it's wrong. I feel like you're a product guy. Yeah, yeah, I think um, so. yeah. I mean, I. I'm the technology is what I believe drives me the most. Where did quality compliance play into all that? Well, I mean, it, it was clear we had to follow quality. So, I mean, when we built the organization and in both cases, Lily and Sanofi, quality, device quality was an integral part of the device team. It had some functional reporting to corporate quality, but it was not part of corporate quality. And we did that because there's a different set of requirements, in my view, a different way of thinking, uh, and quite frankly, different requirements downstream when you get a product to market that you want to make sure that you have people who've had that experience from a from a you know a product standpoint, a hardware standpoint. It's it's one thing, you know, to to get a complaint on a pill or something that people have ingested because they can't give it back to you. But the minute you have a combination product, there's a high probability that you can get the used product back. And getting the used product back allows you to do a lot more investigation and engineering to determine what went wrong and how can we make sure it doesn't happen again. Or in some cases, nothing was wrong. And that in, effect, in itself is, is a sign of something that needs to, to be improved in terms of communication and use and so on. Mm. What did you find when you moved into consulting? 
Did you find that people were having the same problems or because you were working in larger organizations, you hadn't even thought that people were having problems like the ones that you were seeing? What was that like? Uh, yeah, it, that's a really good question because I, fundamentally, I think if I look at all the people that that I've now worked with, and as I said to you earlier, it's been large companies, small companies, startups, US-based, European-based, Asian-based, I think they still very much are suffering from the same problems. I think as much as the industry has really grown, there are still a lot of new people coming into it. And there is still a, a general feeling in most biotech or pharma companies that a device is either necessary evil or it's a kind of a sophisticated kind of packaging. And they don't really appreciate until sometimes it's too late that they have to put some different processes, different systems, different competencies in place to be successful. And that's, I think, what, I, what, I, what I'm seeing right now. And I was surprised by that. I thought that they would be more maturity, but there's not. You thought we would be more far gone than that. Yeah, what? I think more people would have understood from what they saw with the others and some of the mistakes that had been made and some of the learnings that they would appreciate that better. But it just reminds me that, you know, the guys who start the biotech companies, they're brilliant scientists, but they don't have that appreciation of what it takes to make these devices. I, I want to talk about your time managing a product line. I think that's a that's a time in your career that probably in the grand scheme of things I imagine fits in with how you eventually thought but that's that looking at your background that's the role that to me seems like the most out of left field right going <laughs> in basically basically being some some level of a uh, GM of a product line yeah right yeah no I um, think you're absolutely right I mean at that point in time I've actually, um, I don't know anyone, I don't know, maybe one person, but out of the hundreds of people that I've interacted with professionally, I don't know anyone that's gone from say R&D to... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a unique drop and it's another one of those, I'll call it the opportunistic points in time. I mean, Lily had a very large neuroscience franchise with, with Prozac and they had separated into business units. And they had a need for someone to run the business unit. And I was interested in it. And, and you, you rightfully said I was interested in it because it was a kind of GM role. It was, a, it was the time in my life when I had true P&L responsibility. And that was very interesting to me. I had spent time previously um, helping with a, a joint venture that Lily had with Chugai in Japan. So I'd gotten to know the, the clinical side of the business, the R&D side, the contract research organizations and so on. And this was an opportunity to run the business for a while. Now it was somewhat short-lived because you know shortly after I took over the role, the, the patent unexpectedly was, was, was overturned. And as a result, the product became genericized overnight. So it what was once a $2 billion franchise, you know, very rapidly went down to something around 750 million. Now that's nothing to shake a stick at, 
but the there were changes organizationally internally at, at Lilly after that. And then I I I I had a the stint there. I learned a lot. I'm really glad I did it because as you say, I took away a number of managerial aspects around a true PL that have served me well in, in other roles. But in the end, you know, my heart was back, as you said, with the product. And and after that, I moved back into some earlier stage development projects. Well, I think that I always actually think about this conceptually. It's always in the back of my head that what is the full amount of time to spend? And it's always that first bit that you learn the most. It's usually not, say, yep. the second half where you learn the most or adapt the most. It's bit so... I imagine you did gather gather a ton. Did it change the way that you approached R and D? Yeah, I mean, I think it it influences you because you have a sense of how the product, how products are viewed by a commercial team, and what the requirements are of those customers. I mean, and and those kinds of roles. And if you want them to be, not everybody does this, but can be really customer facing. And I've always believed that the more you can really get in front of a customer and find out what they really want and, and hear it directly from them can really guide you on what you want. So I think that's a role that helps you understand, hey, you know, you may think you've got a great therapy and a great solution in the way you're presenting it, but have you really thought about that customer and what they're going through day in, day out, if it's a chronic disease or if it's an acute disease, how they're suffering at the time. And are you giving them the absolute best solution you can? So you've, so you've worked on technical committees, right? Like ISO committees. And I'm yep. wondering when it comes to, to the point that you just made, it's, it's, it, it's, it made me think about how, you know, you mentioned at Lilly, right? That you, you would meet during the ISO committee and discuss, and then, you know, later on you go into competition, but many ISO standards aren't that, say, therapy aligned. So if you look at, say, an 11040-8, that's just general PFS, or 11608, that's auto-injector, it's independent of the therapy. And I'm wondering when, and I know you're, you, you were part of the catheter ISO committee, which also has different applications, or excuse me, from a medical use point of view. What, is, what does that look like from understanding the customer? Because, I mean, generally speaking, it's usually design input requirements that come out of standards, but the user is different. Right. Well, I mean, with, with respect to, the, to, the, to the, the technical committees, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and in fact, the early days of technical committee 84, we were the ones who developed ISO 11608. That was our first oh. standard. Wow. That was the first standard because that's all part of the, the committee. It has catheters and injections. And you're we, absolutely And we haven't even right. talked about that. <laughs> and, and, and you're absolutely correct that it was no, there was no doubt that it was fundamentally a diabetes-focused standard. But that's, in fact, exactly what we learned as time went on that the devices that we had developed the standard for were now being used for other therapeutics and that the insulin standard, if you want to call it that, that we had developed for ISO 11608 really wasn't accurate for other therapeutics. That's what caused the first set of revisions. 
Was it called that in the beginning? Well, it it was for insulin auto. I don't think it was called that, but everybody knew it was for that because I mean, you 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 just there were there were all the references to the pen needles and everything else, so that 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 was clear. And and let's be honest, most of the people who worked on it were involved in the diabetes industry, and that was fine. But that was the start. But it was then we realized, my goodness, we've got. Uh, a whole set of other therapeutics that are now being used by these devices. And this standard isn't correct for them. So it resulted in the first revision. And then after the first revision, sorry, was that, was that immediate feedback? Was it like, Oh, we missed the, we missed other applications. It took, it took a few, it took some time because remember when that standard first came out, that was when I made the comment to myself, I wonder if anybody's ever going to use this standard. You know, we uh, took multiple years to build this. It's so crazy. Now it's yeah, like one of the most widely used. Exactly. And I still get phone calls from people asking me saying, oh, I understand you were involved in the very beginning. What's meant by this? I mean, less and less, obviously, as there's now a whole host of other people who have been engaged. But that led to then the number of other combination products in that field that were coming along. So that's what led then to, we need an automated function standard, which was auto injectors. We need to take care of electronics because they were coming in. We need to take a look at needle-free injectors. We need to take a look at pediatric applications and on and on and on. And those were all implemented. And then we realized we had this plethora of standards that if Subi comes along and wants to develop a device, he has to take two weeks to figure out what the hell to do because there were so many standards. And mm-hmm. that's what ultimately resulted in the rework that was done over the last standard. And now the 2022 version streamlines all of that. So it actually makes it easier for people who want to develop one of these devices to know how to do it. That is so crazy. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. I always think of, I think of that when I publish an episode, you know, I'm like, is anyone going to listen to this? And I usually publish them way before, like we, you know, I I schedule them. So I'll have them like ready to go a few weeks in advance. And then I'll wake up after they publish and it's like 10, 15 listens. And it's only a little while after I publish. And it just like, it's so crazy. And and it's actually at, at this point, right in 2022, it's unbelievable at the outset of 11608 that people on the team were thinking, is anyone ever going to use? Yep. Oh yeah. I remember it so clearly. And, and even stranger is the fact that it's been adopted by the regulatory agencies. I mean, that was our consensus all along, but we never imagined that it really would be fundamentally accepted and integrated by the FDA. And it's also great and something that, that I know those of us that were on the committee at the time were very proud of, but getting the engagement of regulatory agencies in the development of these standards was a huge step that we crossed. And, mm. you know, because at the beginning, you know, especially the FDA, bless their souls, they were saying, hey, we've got our own rules. We don't need yours. But we finally convinced them that it would be to their benefit to come to the party. And they have been great. Uh, you know, advocates and and participants in the development of these standards now, and they are fully integrated. And if you think about it, that just makes it so much easier if you know that their thinking is already integrated into these standards. Yeah. It it just makes so much sense. Yeah. This may be a dumb question, but it's not, it's not clear in my head. So the TC84 is the catheter committee, but they, they also do delivery systems 
Yeah, it's the it's the I forget now. I I can't quote you the official title, but it's for injections and uh, catheters. So okay. it it covers both areas, and they're they're actually quite diverse. So all the work that goes on with catheters is pretty much separate, and it's a separate set of experts from all of the injection based standards, which has a a large core of of experts from you know all through the the industry, as you can imagine. The catheter one is a little bit separate. There's a couple of overlap experts, but most of the technical experts are unique to that part of it. But yeah, it is was, both, both categories. Because I, I was wondering about that when, when I was looking at your background. I'm like, you know, cat, catheters, does it, I, I didn't get it. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's helpful. What was it like chairing the committee after being on it for so long? Well, I would say that chairing the committee or being a, a, a convener of one of the working groups is an extremely rewarding job, extremely challenging, because what you have is supposedly a number of experts from a number of countries, so usually 10, 15 countries, although in fairness, U.S. and and Europe are, are heavily represented, but there's more and more Asian countries participating as well as Eastern European. Those experts are supposed to represent their national standards organization. However, the reality is pre-COVID, everybody's travel and expenses for attending the meetings is funded by their place of employment. So you can, you, you can see that on one hand, you've got kind of the left side of the brain saying, I'm representing my national standards organization. The right side of the brain is saying, I better make sure I take into consideration my company's requirements and perspectives. And then when you take into consideration that you have multiple countries, you have this three-dimensional that's going on. And it is a great lesson in how to manage with people, how to communicate with people, how to deal with conflict how to get consensus, how to debate and negotiate. It was a wonderful experience and I learned a lot. And everybody who has those roles will tell you the same thing. What, in terms of, so after COVID, did that change? I know you've been in consulting. Can you can you be in consulting and still be on yep. the committees? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know Anyone some can be a committee. You can, you, can, you can, as a private citizen, you can be on the committee. And in fact, in some of the committees, we actually had patients. Now, we had to fund those patients. But when we were looking for a, 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 um, a standard for the visually impaired, nobody on the committee was visually impaired. So we went out and found some people who, who had eyesight problems. And we invited a couple of them to join the committee as experts to help guide us on what was going to be important and not important. It was trying to get that customer centricity into the standard because we we don't I have no idea what it's like not to be able to see. I mean, I think I can try to portray it, but I have no idea. And, and it goes back to that that point about customer centricity and standards, right? So that's yeah, that's helpful insight that you know, even though even though a standard may start out with a limited scope just based on the need to harmonize, like you mentioned with insulin. Does it mean that it won't become wider as that need becomes more apparent to its scope, where other yeah. therapeutics, for example, in, in injection became um, 
uh, say hungry for that harmonized harmonized requirements. And similarly, if you're adding in requirements where no one in industry can you know adequately speak to it, then you can source that externally. That's cool. As we close, a couple of kind of personal questions. One is, what is a book that changed your life? That's a good question. I've had many. I funny enough, I think you're going to laugh, but I think Ken Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth is one of the books that. I always remember because I go back and I look at what the 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 amount of challenge, the amount of engineering and workmanship that went into building these cathedrals in medieval England, uh, and the the fact that I can still go there today and see them just amazes me and and just reminds me of the ingenuity of people and 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 what we can do if we put our minds to it and and it's not going to happen quickly sometimes sometimes good things in life take a long time huh pillars of the earth that's it's funny i went to florence once and i saw yeah. the the domo that i think took forever to build oh um, yeah it's a similar thing yeah yeah that's so cool what what else what other book I'm not so sure that any other ones right now are jumping into my head. I'm I'm actually starting a book right now called The Message. I can't say that it's it it's a more current book. It's actually a book about Moderna and how they uh, changed the world and how big a gamble it was and how you know if you get to the right place at the right time you can have a little bit of luck and you can end up being a rock star as well as paying a great tribute and, and contribution to, to society. So that's certainly on my list right now of, of sting reads. That's awesome. What is something you're excited about? Uh, well, I get excited about a lot of things. I get excited about my grandchildren <laughs> for sure. But I think if I take a look at, you know, some of the technology that I'm, you know, experimenting with and exposed to, I get really excited about some of the new technologies that are coming up that promise even better um, ways of treating, particularly oncology. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think we are so close to treating oncology, and I think we just need to find some unique ways to get the medicines closer to the tumors. And I really believe that there are some neat ways going on out there. There's there's people, you know, developing robots that can be manipulated through the subcutaneous membrane with with magnets and things of that nature and i think that that is really exciting that that really excite that kind of technology really excites me well excellent really appreciate you coming on the show paul it's been an honor interviewing you interviewing you thank you thank you